0: Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. And Good morning. So the story is told of a wise and good king who ruled in Persia long ago, and he loved and he cared for his people greatly, and so he wanted to know how they lived. And so he also wanted to know about their hardships. Therefore, he would often dress in the clothes of a working man or a beggar, and he would go to the homes of the poor. No one he visited, though, knew that he was the king. Well, one time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar, and he sat down in the dirt with him, he ate the coarse food that he was eating, and he spoke cheerful and kind words to him, and then he left. Well, later, he visited the poor man again and disclosed his identity, saying, I am your king. Well, the king thought the man would surely ask for some gift or favor, as people typically did when they found out who he was, but this man didn't. Instead, he said, You left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You sat in the dirt with me. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts. To me, you have given yourself." Now, a modern day equivalent of this story might be the reality TV show Undercover Boss. Maybe you've seen that. Anyone want to admit to that? (laughs) That's actually pretty good. I've watched it a few times. It's a TV series that follows high level executives as they slip anonymously into the rank and file of their organizations. And each week, a different leader sacrifices the comfort of their corner office with all its many windows for the undercover mission to examine the inner workings of their operation. Understand what it's like to work as an employee in their business. Or perhaps if you don't relate to that, maybe you're a fan of NBC's classic sitcom, The Office. And it's like Michael Scott. uh, This is season two, episode 15, and he's the manager of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. He's protesting women in the workplace day. And so he decides he's going to take the men to the office in the warehouse to do their guys in the workplace day they're going to do all the things that the warehouse workers would typically do and Michael of course has no idea what he's doing in the warehouse but he is determined that he is going to ride a forklift and he has no idea how to do that so he gets and he starts to knock everything off the shelves Well, in our scripture reading from Isaiah today, we also discover a king or boss who chooses to enter in, to experience what those below him experience, to leave his throne room and descend into the squalor of his kingdom, to leave his cushy corner office and enter the warehouse to humble himself. Yes, when Isaiah speaks of Emmanuel, he's talking about God himself descending to earth to take on human flesh and to walk among us. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in his message paraphrase of John chapter one. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's Jesus. He moves in. This is God's rescue plan for a broken and lost world. So let's turn to our scripture reading from Isaiah and see what God would say to us today. And as you're doing that, you can find it on the scripture sheet if you want, or it'll probably be on the screen uh, right here. I was tempted to have the World Cup on that screen. But Dorian's keeping me on the straight and narrow. Thank you, Dorian. First, though, it's really helpful if we understand some backstory to what's happening here in our passage today. You see, unfortunately, the lectionary, it drops us right into the middle of this story. It's a bit like you show up to see a movie tomorrow, and you show up about 50 minutes into the movie. You probably have no idea what's going on when you arrive. Well, remember the big picture of our story that we've been talking about this last few weeks in Isaiah, is it's that God has called this prophet Isaiah into the ministry in the year that King Isaiah, Isaiah died, and that's Isaiah chapter 6, and that's around about 740 BC, but by the time we come to chapter 7, it's around 5 years later, 735 BC, and there's this crisis of Isaiah's generation that's exploding on the scene. Now, perhaps you remember after the death of Solomon, that's King David's son, around 931 BC, so a couple of hundred years before, Israel splits into two kingdoms. You've got the 10 Israelite uh, tribal group that is uh, probably much bigger in the north, and they create and they form their own state. And the Bible rather confusingly calls the breakaway kingdom Israel, which isn't helpful, but that's what the northern kingdom's called. And then there's a southern kingdom made up of two tribes, and they're called Judah, and that one's based around Jerusalem and the Bible calls them Judah. Now, Isaiah chapter 7 locates us more specifically about 200 years into this massive dysfunction, 735 BC. And as the commentator Kent Hughes puts it, things aren't looking good for Judah. Remember, that's the smaller southern kingdom. He writes this, By now, the Assyrian Empire, which is this huge empire, at the eastern end of the Fertile Crescent, is rising, growing, flexing its muscles, reaching, grabbing, dominating, skilled and constant in systematic cruelty. The little kingdoms of Palestine, member north and south, are no match for the new bullion town. So Israel, northern kingdom, joins forces with Syria, a northerly neighbor, in a pact of mutual defense against Assyria. They want the collaboration of Judah, southern kingdom as well, for further reinforcement. In fact, they demand it. But King Ahaz, king of Judah, is resisting this pressure. So what happens? Well, the Northern Alliance threatens to attack Judah, and they're gonna get rid of Ahaz and put in their own puppet on the throne and simply absorb Judah into their coalition. But from the start, their plan is doomed. You see, God's covenant with the throne of David still stands despite his people's failures. That's why if we go back to the beginning of our chapter today, if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, you can see this in Isaiah 7.1. It states that the enemy couldn't mount an attack against Jerusalem. Isaiah wants us to know from the outset that this threat will vanish. There is no need to panic. God is with his people. And unfortunately, Ahaz just doesn't believe that. In fact, he doesn't want to believe it. He prefers dismay. He prefers hand-rigging and a certain level of chaos because he feels more normal frantically devising his own salvation and lusting for the success of his own plans rather than delighting in the victory of God. And you see, he has a big problem. His heart is hard. It's hard towards God. And that's the setting of our reading today. It's the defining crisis of Isaiah's generation, inflated in its emotional impact because their hearts aren't filled with a sense of the glory of God. And so today, we then read, uh, we pick up in verses 11 and 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. You know, without the larger context of what's going on, you might think that Ahaz is actually a particularly holy and righteous man. After all, he says that he will not put the Lord God to the test. But think about it, besides the fact that this is disobeying God's command right there, remember what I just told you. He is a man who lusts for his own success. He doesn't want to rely on God. He wants all the glory for himself, and we can see this as we read through what's happened before. And so frustrated with his response, the prophet Isaiah says in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? which is pretty painful, isn't it? Isaiah sees right through this pious man, this, and he sees this self-righteous behavior of King Ahaz, and also the posturing of God's people around him. You know, the full semantic range of the Hebrew word used for weary here is to grieve, offend, or exhaust. To grieve, offend, or exhaust. And being a parent, I get the gist of what he's saying. You know, <laughs> I don't think any of them, oh, one of them's in here today, sorry. <laughs> Oops. It's like when you have that argument with your child, not Caleb, <clears throat> for the umpteenth time about doing the dishes. And it could have all been done already by the time the argument ends, Right? <laughs> and the tantrum finally comes to a close. Well, you feel exhausted by the argument, you feel grieved by the disobedience, and you feel offended by some of the choice words that have been used. And all in all, as Isaiah would put it, you are weary. (laughs) And yet, and yet I'm sure that my kids would often say the same about me, that I can be a wearisome man. Well, next we see that the Lord's pushing on with or without Ahaz or his people. And he says that if you won't tell me what sign you want, I'm going to give you a sign that you could never even have dreamed of. Verses 14 through 17. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And you know, while yes, the idea of a virgin birth as it's put here is pretty incredible, There's something even more amazing that's being prophesied here. After all, there is actually some debate about whether or not the word spoken here by Isaiah really means virgin. Some commentators argue that the correct translation of Isaiah 7.14 should probably be, behold the young woman shall conceive and bear a son. But the Gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, both quote from this passage and translate the word to be virgin, and so we tend to also read it that way. And while I have no doubt in the virgin birth, I would argue that the message and the miraculous sign of Isaiah, 714, is not the virginity of the mother, but rather the God with us significance of this child. The God with us significance of this child. Yes, God is foretelling his arrival. He's going to enter into the hopelessness of the Israelites himself. He's going to become human and experience all that this world has and experiences the way that we do. And yet he'll live the perfect life that we can't. And because of this, he'll be able to be the spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. The rescuer will finally have arrived and God himself will have moved into the neighborhood and this changes everything. It reminds me of the story of Count Zinzendorf, who was a bishop in the Moravian church in the 18th century. Remember, I think it was the Moravians that Wesley met that led to his conversion. Uh, but Bishop Zinzendorf was converted in an art gallery in Dusseldorf, Germany, while he was contemplating a painting of Christ on the cross that he saw. This painting was by Domenico Feti, and it's called Ecce Homo, meaning Behold the Man. And on the painting is an inscription that simply says, This have I suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? This have I suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? Now it's said that when Fethi had finished his first sketch of the face of the Redeemer, the artist called in his landlady's little daughter and asked her who she thought it was. The girl looked at it and said, oh, it is a good man. Well, the painter knew he'd failed, so he destroyed the first sketch, and after praying for greater skill, finished the second. And again, he called the little girl in and asked her to tell him whom she thought the face represented. Well, this time the girl said she thought it looked like someone who was a great sufferer. Well, again, the painter knew that he'd failed, and so again he destroyed the sketch he'd made. After more meditation and prayer, he made a third sketch. And when it was finished, he called the girl in a third time and asked her who she thought it was. And looking at the portrait, the girl exclaimed, it is the Lord, it is the Lord. You know, that alone makes the coming of Christ meaningful to the world. Not that a good man came, not that a wise teacher came, not that a great sufferer came, but that God himself came, Emmanuel, God with us. And unfortunately, often we hear that. We hear that so often that sometimes it just becomes something we take for granted. Oh yeah, God with us. But think about it. God with us. I mean, it's incredible when you stop and think about that. What he has done. That God himself has entered in to our world. But not only this. Uh, His incarnation, as we call it, brings more good news. He is, he's going to be able to truly relate and understand each one of us. You see, the God of the universe, the one who created us, came down to us. He tasted thirst. He felt hunger. He shivered in the cold. He laid his head head on the bare ground to sleep. He was tempted by the devil. He was tested in numerous ways. He wept with friends, overwhelmed by grief, and he watched as everyone walked away from him in his darkest hour, and then he experienced incredible incredible physical pain and loneliness in that moment too. Yes, he's experienced what we've experienced, and he is able to empathize with us in our struggles and strengthen us in our weakness. Summing up both of these amazing truths in one passage, God's ability to save us and his ability to identify with us, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here we see that God becoming one of us both enables us to be set free from sin and death, and it means that he's able to help us now. It is quite astounding news. So this Advent, as you look toward Christmas, maybe you find yourself longing for hope too. Perhaps you're wrestling with your sin and your brokenness. Maybe you're in an earthly mess, longing for a heavenly miracle. Well, the good news is that Jesus offers you forgiveness and a way forward. But will you put your trust in him and surrender to his ways and stop seeking your own solutions and doing the things the way you want to do them? Or maybe, perhaps, you've experienced injustice, or you feel bruised, abused, unloved, lonely, barely existing. Well, Isaiah reminds us that even in our brokenness, Jesus is with us. He is Emmanuel. He feels your sorrow. He knows your struggles. He knows your anxieties. And while you may wonder why a loving God would allow you to suffer as you are, if you ask anyone in this room who's been a Christian for a while, at least a few years, it seems that every so often God inevitably brings crisis into our lives. And sooner or later, this question presses itself upon us. If I put my trust in God, will he save me? If I put my trust in God, will he save me? Will he be true to the promises in the gospel when it really counts for me? And our answer to that question will either be an agonized struggle back and forth as we're unable to make up our minds, or our answer will be a clear yes. And the larger point that Isaiah is making is that God's people don't trust him as they should and they pay a price for it. But his grace will have the last word on our behalf, the triumph of his grace over our failure. God will be with the faithful remnant who gather around Isaiah, and he will be with all people who choose to follow Jesus. I'll finish with this. In 1995, the singer Joan Osborne released a song that became a huge hit called One of Us. Maybe, maybe you remember that. And the lyrics went like this, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? You know, I loved the song at the time, even if some of the lyrics were a little bit questionable. It was at least thought-provoking in our culture, even if it was a little misguided, because God does have a name. In fact, he has numerous names, but the name this song most relates to is Emmanuel, God with us. Because 2,000 years ago, that first Christmas, God did become one of us. That's his love and grace at work. He, uh, we couldn't save ourselves, and so he came to rescue us. And what was death to Ahaz is life to us who believe. As the poor man visited by the Persian king put it, "'You left your palace and your glory "'to visit me in this dark, dreary place. "'You ate the coarse food I ate. "'You brought gladness to my heart. "'To others you have given your rich gifts. "'To me you have given yourself.'" Jesus gives himself to us. The question is, will we put our trust in him? Will we follow him obediently and receive the gift that Emmanuel truly is? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you come in the hearts of each one of us? And would you help us to know you as Emmanuel, as God with us? If there are those in this room who have never chosen to surrender their lives to you, Would they do it now and experience your love and your grace right here, the love and grace that is Emmanuel God with us? And for those who know you but who are struggling right now and wondering where you are, would you help them to have eyes to see that you are walking with them in the midst of this struggle, that you are there with them and that you understand and empathize with what they're going through and you offer them the strength they need to make it through to the other side. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.